Amillennialists like me think that Christ will return at the end of a period of time that uh, we are in right now, symbolized by the thousand years John sees in the book of Revelation. And when Christ returns at the end of that thousand years that we're in right now, the saints will be raised immortal uh, and the lost will be raised and sentenced to hell. By contrast, premillennialists think that Christ will return at the beginning of the thousand years that John talks about in the book of Revelation, and that at that same time the saints will be raised immortal to reign with Christ on earth for a thousand years, at the end of which then the rest of the dead will rise and be sentenced to hell. How might what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about the destruction of the death, the last enemy that is death, how might that inform the debate between amillennialism and premillennialism? That's the question that we tackle in today's episode of The Apologetics. This is Chris Date, and welcome to The Apologetics, where every other week I discuss a wide variety of theological issues and show how a properly biblical worldview can help defend the historic Christian faith from its critics. Join me as we think through what we believe and why we believe it, and not something else. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of The Apologetics. My name is, of course, Chris Date, and if you have been watching the show for uh, a number of episodes, you might be able to tell that I'm using a different camera setup. Uh, for a few years now, uh, as long as I've been doing YouTube streams, which has, I guess, been a couple of years, I've been using just a little Logitech uh, webcam, and it's served my purpose as well, but I see other YouTubers doing really, having really amazing shots and things like that using much more professional-looking equipment, and my wife is a professional photographer and has a beautiful and fancy Canon EOS R, um, which uh, uh, I recently learned could be used as my webcam. Um, and that's what I'm doing right now, is using that camera to uh, to do my live stream. Um, now, this is the first, the very first live stream I've done using this setup, which means that I'm not 100% sure how my picture is looking to you right now. Um, and also, it, I've had to tweak the sync between video and sound to make sure that they're lining up. Um, and on top of that, there's lighting issues. That's why you're seeing a little bit of reflection in my glasses. I, I need to work on lighting. But the question I'd love for you to answer for me in the chat, uh, which I've got open and watching, and I see Taylor Smith has mentioned it, and Argoski, thank you both, but I'd love for you to tell me if you think that the, that the video quality that you're seeing now is at least as good, if not better, than uh, previous episodes of The Apologetics and previous episodes of Rethinking Hell Live, which I've also been doing using that old webcam. Um, thank you, Susan, as well. Thank you, Jamie, for the sh for saying uh, sharp and crisp. That has me encouraged. Uh, also, let me know if the sound of my voice is lining up well with the um, the video. But in any event, I hope that over coming weeks I will be able to improve the lighting situation in here and, and maybe have something a little bit more, even more professional looking than uh, than I've been doing and that I've even got right now. Um, I'll never get to quite the level of professional appearance that people like Cameron Bertuzzi has, um, but hopefully I can up my game a little bit more than I've been doing. And, and thank you to everybody in the um, chat. Yeah, the background will be fuzzier because it's a professional camera 
camera meant to focus, you know, on one place and everything behind me is going to be blurry. But that's okay. That's, um, I'm seeing a lot of great comments. Thank you so much. I, I, you don't need to say any more. You've got me really encouraged. So let me tell you what's going to happen today. Um, well, I'll tell you what. This is going to be probably a shorter than usual episode. I don't have a ton of material to cover. Um, and that's going to be good for me because I'm a little bit tired. And I, so I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in. And the very the very first few things I say at the beginning of this will uh, give you an introduction into what we're going to be talking about. So... Um, up on the screen, you can see a little graphic that I've hodgepodge together using a recent episode of Justin Brierley's Unbelievable, specifically an episode of The Great Conversation. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at the chat and getting distracted by the humor. Uh, this is a, I, I took an image, the, the thumbnail, of the recent episode of Unbelievable that featured uh, Cosmic Skeptic versus a Roman Catholic uh, on the... Um, uh, on the topic of God and, and God versus atheism. And I tweaked it and put in my picture in the place of Cosmic Skeptics, and then my friend Dan Gepfrich, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but I think I am, Gepfrich, or Gepfrich, um, he's on the right side there. I superimposed our faces over it, and I changed the title to Pre or Amillennialism because I want to announce to you, my uh, viewers, that in mid-May, in about a month from now, Dan and I are going to be recording an episode of Unbelievable with Justin Brierley, where I will be representing amillennialism and Dan will be representing premillennialism. Um, now, just a word about Daniel. Um, as far as I can tell, he's not particularly well known or anything, um, but he uh, was somebody that I really had uh, a, a fantastic time meeting and getting to know uh, when I went to South Carolina for my recent debate on the topic of hell. Daniel was the moderator of that debate, and he'd never done, uh, he'd never moderated a debate before, but he did fantastically in that. And after the debate was over, he and I spent a while in the car just talking about a variety of theological topics and I really enjoyed his company. I feel like he and I are kindred spirits and he was nothing but kind and respectful and friendly to me. And uh, and he's a dispensational premillennialist. And so when I got back from that debate, I had been wanting to do some sort of a amillennialism versus premillennialism discussion on Unbelievable. Um, and for some reason, hadn't ever it hadn't ever occurred to me to reach out to Justin and ask him if he'd like to host that. So I reached out to him and asked and Justin said, yeah, sure. Who do you have in mind? to represent premillennialism and Daniel having because I had just had such a great time with him um, he, he struck me as a great person to represent premillennialism granted a, a particular version of premillennialism called dispensationalism but nevertheless premillennialism um, and I recommended him to Justin and Justin has set it up so Daniel and I are going to be recording with Justin in about a month um, to debate premillennialism versus amillennialism and I'll be representing representing amillennialism. Now that um, so, well, so so the reason I'm doing the episode that I'm doing now is because I want I have already um, done an episode on one big reason why I'm an amillennialist. I'll talk about that in a moment. But there's another reason as well that has to do with what Paul says about the destruction of death in First Corinthians 15. And that's what we're going to be looking at today, is um, how 1 Corinthians 15, um, where Paul talks about the destruction of death, the last enemy, um, we're gonna I'm going to talk today about why I think it supports amillennialism and is, it, and is not reconcilable with premillennialism. All right? 
So let's dig in here. Um, for those of you who are already really well versed in um, systematic theology and eschatological topics, or sorry, the, the theological topics and terms, um, the following information won't be news to you. But for those who are a little bit less familiar with the terrain of the debate, I want to retread some of that ground that I have already covered in previous episodes of the show, just to sort of summarize and catch people up. Um, in two previous episodes in particular, I have covered questions around eschatology. One of them was a case for so-called partial preterism, which is a view that I hold, and that's the second bullet down below that you're seeing under eschatological taxonomies, uh, that is, uh, different breakdowns of the different perspectives that there are when it comes to eschatology. The issue of preterism is, is one, of, uh, one among several options in one taxonomy of, eschat of eschatology. The debate between futurism, historicism, idealism, and preterism. But the other video that I did had to do with a different taxonomy, the taxonomy between premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. That's the ta taxonomy that we're going to be discussing today. And these are views that concern the timing of Christ's return relative to or with respect to the so-called thousand years that John mentions in Revelation 20. All right. Um, and these also, well, so, so that, that thousand years is this passage from Revelation 20, uh, verses 2 and 4 to 5, where an angel seizes the dragon and binds him for a thousand years. Then martyrs come to life and reign with Christ for that thousand years. And at the end of those thousand years, the rest of the dead are raised. That's the passage that uh, where, where the whole concept of a, millennial, uh, a millennium comes from. This, this debate between pre-post and amillennialism all concern, I mean, they have to do with everything Scripture says. There's a lot of passages that, that bear on this debate. But in terms of the word millennium in the, you know, the labels ah, post, and premillennialism, that's specifically this passage here. And premillennialism pre is the view that Christ will return in our future at the beginning of that thousand years. And the saints will rise at that time, they will rise immortal, and they will reign with Christ on earth for those thousand years. That's why it's called premillennialism. Christ will return pre-millennium, at the beginning of the millennium. Post-millennialism is a bit of a uh, chimera in terms of how it is. I mean, it, it's sort of like a um, mix of pre and ah uh, millennialism in the sense that uh, it, it, they, like ah uh, millennialists, which I'll mention in a moment, think that we are in the period of time right now symbolized by the thousand years, um, but that Christ will return after those thousand years. That's why it's called post-millennialism. Post -millennialism. Christ will return after the thousand years. But critically, there's a significant portion of this period of time that has not yet happened, or at least has not yet been completely realized, during which virtually the entire world and all of its institutions and governments will be Christianized. It's, it's what postmillennialists call this sort of golden age of Christianity, during which there might be 5% of the world's population that's non-Christian, but the vast, overwhelming majority of its population and institutions will all be Christian. Um, that's what makes postmillennialism distinct. Um, but then there's my view, amillennialism. And like postmillennialists, at least postmillennialists today, uh, historically postmillennialists post might not have said this, but 
most post-millennialists today, I think, would say that we are currently in the period of time symbolized by those thousand years in Revelation 20. Uh, and so, and we, amillennialists, think that Christ currently reigns in heaven during this time that we're in right now. And that after that period of time that we're in right now, Christ will return. But the reason why this is called amillennialism is because we don't think that this thousand years is meant to be taken literally at all. Um, the, 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 and you know, there's so much I could say about this, but we'll save those for another discussion. But the point is, this is what these three views are with respect to the, the return of Christ and the millennium. Premillennialism says Christ will return at the beginning of the millennium. Amillennialists and postmillennialists think that Christ will return after the period of time known as the thousand years, which symbolizes the period of time we're in right now. Now, the first resurrection is often uh, an important factor in this taxonomy as well, because premillennialists say that the, the saints are raised when Christ returns at the beginning of the millennium, whereas post and amillennialists think that the saints will be raised at the end of that thousand years. So here, so here's an example. Craig, a scholar named Craig Coaster, Craig Keister. I'm not sure how to pronounce that name. I'm a little embarrassed there. But in his entry in the Anchorial Bible Commentary on the Book of Revelation, he says that in premillennialism, the faithful who have died are restored to endless life that begins in the millennium and continues in New Jerusalem, and then others are raised on a second occasion at the end of the millennial vision. So in premillennialism, here's a, a timeline of future events, um, so you can kind of get a visual picture of how premillennialism construes things. Um, here is now, and at some point in our future will be the so-called first resurrection, when according to premillennialists, the saints will be raised bodily immortal. Then there will be a literal period of a thousand years during which Christ and these resurrected immortal saints will reign on earth, at the end of which the rest of the dead will be raised bodily. All right, so in a nutshell, this is a visual um, picture of what premillennialism thinks uh, the future will unfold like. By contrast, in a previous episode of this show, The Apologetics, back in episode 9, I presented my amillennialist view of the first resurrection. And I called this amillennialism sub-3 because the, the, there are, uh, the more common amillennialist understandings of the first resurrection are different than mine. Um, so go back and watch that episode so you can see what I'm talking about. But the view of amillennialism that I presented has now, right here on the timeline, before which Christ was raised bodily, which I think is what John means by the first resurrection. And then this is the church age that we're in right now, symbolized by that thousand years, after which humankind, saints and non-saints alike, will be raised bodily. All right? So this is my view of amillennialism, but it's not, for the purposes of this discussion, any significantly different from other views of amillennialism, because the other views of amillennialism just differ on what first resurrection means. So I've just replaced that, you know, Christ raised bodily with question marks down there to say that however an amillennialist understands the first resurrection, we take that to have been in the past at the inauguration of the church age that is symbolized by the thousand years from Revelation, at the end of which uh, will be the second resurrection when humankind, saints and non-saints alike, are raised bodily immortal. All right? 
So this is the, the view that I'm defending as a non-millennialist. If the specific nature of the first resurrection comes up uh, in, the, in the discussion on Unbelievable, and it will because I'm going to press it into service, uh, then, you know, I'll, I'll discuss that. But for the conversation we're having in this episode, we don't need to concern ourselves with what first resurrection means. The point is it was in our past and it inaugurated the church age that we're in right now, at the end of which humankind will be raised. So this is the fundamental difference between premillennialism and amillennialism, is where is now on the timeline? Is now, as per premillennialism, uh, prior, prior to the thousand years? So are we right now awaiting the onset of the thousand years? Or is now somewhere in the middle of the period of time symbolized by the thousand years, as amillennialists like me contend? That's the question, uh, the fundamental difference between premillennialism and amillennialism. Now, of course, there's lots of other things that, that come into play here, but this is the fundamental, the fundamental question. Importantly, however, both premillennialism and amillennialism, I think, would say that, would agree with each other, that at the second resurrection and all of the cosmic events that sort of happen on that day, and by day I just mean that moment in time, not necessarily a 24-hour period of time, it's at that point that the last of God's enemies will be destroyed in hell. And then after that, there will no longer be any loose enemies. Now, I personally would say no enemies at all, uh, because I'm an annihilationist. And if you want to learn more about that, you can watch Rethinking Hell. But for the sake of this discussion, I'll just say no loose enemies. Uh, because in uh, non-annihilationist views, God's enemies will be subdued in hell. They will be constrained there. You know, They'll be subject to God there, albeit still rebellious and isolated from the rest of God's people. Okay. So this is where pre- and amillennialism agree, that in the future, at the end of the thousand years, when the second resurrection takes place, the last of God's enemies will be destroyed in hell, and there will no longer be whatever we understand destroyed to mean, and then there will no longer be any loose enemies. And this is going to be critical for this episode, for the argument that I'm about to offer, this specific thing here. We, we have to agree, as amillennialists and premillennialists, that the enemies of God, the last of God's enemies that have not yet been destroyed, will be destroyed then, at the cosmic events that surround the second resurrection. Because that's when hell, um, that, that, that's when Satan is thrown into hell, it's when his angels are thrown into hell, it's when the resurrected lost are thrown into hell. In the imagery of, God, uh, of John's vision, it's when death and Hades are thrown into hell. All right. So this, this is really critical. We have to agree, regardless of what millennial views, we, what millennial view we hold, that that is when the last of God's enemies yet to be destroyed will be destroyed. So that brings us then to the issue, the argument I'm going to be making today. It concerns what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. If we're going to take that seriously and, and reconcile that with our understanding of the millennium, we've got to we've got to fit that in to the timelines we've been looking at. 
So let's try to fit that into premillennialism. Here's that chart again. And remember, we all have to agree that the last of God's enemies that have yet to be, yet to be destroyed will be destroyed on the day of the second resurrection. Again, the, the period of time, the, the events surrounding the second resurrection. So we, we are going to need to put the, the destruction of death, the last enemy to be destroyed, we have to put its destruction here at the end of the resurrection, in, according to premillennialism. But remember, it's at the beginning of the thousand years, the beginning of the millennium, that the saints are raised bodily and immortal, according to premillennialism. And then there's this thousand years intervening between those two points in time. Just to make it clearer, I'll turn the, the arrow a little bit, right? So from the time when the saints are raised immortal, according to uh, premillennialism, to the time when death as the last enemy to be destroyed is destroyed would have to be a thousand years. But that is precisely what renders or what begins to conflict with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 about the destruction of death. Because Paul says in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But then he goes on to say that this will happen when the perishable puts on the imperishable. The mortal puts on immortality. He's talking there about the bodily resurrection and, and immortalization of the saints. That, the bodily resurrection and immortalization of the saints, is when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on the uh, immortality. It's at that point, Paul says, that shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Which you can see is is synonymous with the last enemy being destroyed, right? The, uh, over here we've got, uh, uh, I should say over here, we've got Paul saying the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And then later in the passage we have him saying the same thing but in a different way. Death is swallowed up in victory. And when does Paul say that will happen? When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. In other words, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, death is destroyed when the saints are raised immortal. And notice how, 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 how much sense this makes. Once God's people have been raised immortal and nobody ever dies again, death will have been destroyed. It will have been destroyed. So that makes sense. And it's also what is taught in uh, Isaiah 25, whence this language of death being swallowed up comes. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 54, death is swallowed up in victory, is a quote from certain textual variants of the Septuagint reading of Isaiah 25, uh, verse 8. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And then just a little bit later, in the very next chapter, Isaiah says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. So what do we see here? We see the same thing that we see in 1 Corinthians 15, that death is destroyed, Yahweh will swallow up death forever, the covering that's covering all peoples, all nations, Israel, Israelite and Gentile alike. Death is destroyed when the saints are raised immortal. So... Coming back to the graph where, where we began to place the destruction of the last enemy, death, according to premillennialism, we can't put that at the point in time of the second resurrection. 
Because according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and Isaiah, whence he's getting his language, death is destroyed when the saints are raised bodily immortal, which according to premillennialism is at the beginning of the thousand years. And indeed, Jamie in the chat is saying that he understands death be destroyed for the saints. But this is a problem. It's still not going to work for the same reason that I'm about to explain right here, which is that there are still enemies yet to be destroyed. And that's going to be a big problem for premillennialism when we try to move death, the destruction of death, back to the time when the saints are raised immortal. Um, here is John MacArthur. He is a dispensationalist, albeit um, a bit of an enigmatic one because he's also... Um, uh, he's also a Calvinist, and um, he, I, I don't. I think he would part ways with dispensationalists on some points. I've seen dispensationalists critique him, although they critique him because he hangs out with people that aren't dispensationalists, like R.C. Sproul. Uh, and I don't know if that's a legitimate reason for saying that he's not a dispensationalist. But nevertheless, he self-identifies as one, even if he's not 100% happy with the label. And here's what John MacArthur says. He says in his commentary on Revelation 20 that John calls the resurrection of the saints from all ages the first resurrection. And it's clear that he's talking there about the same thing he's talking about when he comments on 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, Because earthly natural bodies cannot occupy the eternal kingdom, this perishable must put on the imperishable. That passage from 1 Corinthians 15 we were just quoting. Okay, so we see here the dispensationalist affirming that the bodily resurrection of the saints in 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection of the saints, the first resurrection um, at the beginning of the millennium. But look what goes on to happen according to premillennialism, to, to specifically dispensational premillennialism. He goes on to say, Satan and his demon hordes will be imprisoned in the abyss for the duration of the millennium in which the Lord Jesus Christ will rule with unopposed sovereignty. So you've got no, you know, no enemies oppressing uh, God and his kingdom, the, the, the saints and the kingdom of Christ with whom they reign. But then, later, at the end of the millennium, Satan's binding will end when the thousand years are completed and he is released from his prison to lead a final rebellion of sinners who will then be utterly destroyed. Do you see the problem here? In dispensationalism, the first resurrection is the bodily resurrection and immortalization of the saints at the beginning of the millennium. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uh, and uh, in Isaiah, um, the destruction of death, death is the last enemy to be destroyed. But what do we see in dispensational premillennialism? And I think this is true of premillennialism as well, more broadly. It's not specific only to dispensationalism. Well, according to, uh, to premillennialism, there will be sinners in the future that are rebellious and will then be destroyed after, a thousand years after, death is destroyed. So death can't be the last enemy to be destroyed according to premillennialism. So we've tried to move death the, as the last enemy to be destroyed, we tried to move its destruction back to where Paul and Isaiah put it, namely the resurrection of the saints, where they, once they are, when they are made immortal. But that doesn't work for the reasons that we just saw, because there are still rebels that will be destroyed a thousand years later. But we also can't have the destruction of death at the end of a thousand years, um, because Paul and Isaiah 
place the destruction of death as the last enemy to be destroyed as contemporaneous with the resurrection of the saints. So that doesn't work either. So what are we left with? Well, we're left with, I contend, I, I'm, I'm fallible and I could be wrong about this, but my contention is that what we're left with is the realization that premillennialism cannot be reconciled with the timing of death's destruction in 1 Corinthians 15. You can't have it at the beginning of the millennium because there are still re uh, rebels that will be destroyed later, enemies that will be destroyed later. You can't put it at the end of the millennium because Paul and Isaiah both make it contemporaneous with the resurrected immortalization of the saints. There's nowhere to go. <laughs> There's nowhere else to place it. So premillennialism, it seems to me, has a real problem here, an irreconcilable problem. But now let's return to the timeline under amillennialism of any of any persuasion, regardless of how we understand the first resurrection. My my amillennialist brothers and sisters in Christ, many of them, most of them, almost all of them, will disagree with me on the nature of the first resurrection, but they will agree with me on this timeline. So let's put the destruction of death at the end of the thousand years, the church age that is symbolized by those thousand years. After all. It's at that point, at the end of those thousand years, when humankind is raised bodily and the saints are made immortal. That matches up. That's what we just saw in 1 Corinthians 15 and Isaiah 25 and 26. Death will be destroyed when the saints are raised bodily. And it will be the last enemy to be destroyed. There are no more enemies left to be destroyed at this event. Because uh, when the saints are raised immortal, the lost will be raised and sentenced to hell where they're destroyed. However you understand destruction. If you're a believer in eternal torment and you think their destruction is their subjugation in hell, their separation from God, fine. If you're an annihilationist like me and think it represents their annihilation, their death, literally, fine. Either way, they're thrown into hell and destroyed. And now that all of God's people are all who remain and are immortal and will live forever and nobody will ever die again, death will have been destroyed. It makes perfect sense. It fits like a hand in a glove. As Paul puts it, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass, come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. It fits so beautifully and so well. So... Going back, so here are the two main arguments I will intend to present to my friend Daniel when we appear on Unbelievable Together. Number one is the argument that I offered back in the previous episode of this show when I addressed the nature of the first resurrection. Namely, the phrase first resurrection, when John says this is the first resurrection, is an interpretation of the scene. It's not a label, it's not a description, it's nothing like that. It's it's the same kind of thing that has already by this point happened several times in Revelation, and it's what happened when Joseph was in prison in Genesis 40, and after Joseph got out of prison in Genesis 41, when Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel's, Daniel 2 and Daniel 4, and then an angel interprets Daniel's dream in Daniel 7, and so on and so forth. All throughout all of these examples, you have the interpreters whether it's the seers themselves or some sort of angelic visitor, they all interpret the symbolism in these apocalyptic visions by saying, this is that. Uh, Joseph tells the um, tells Pharaoh, for example, the seven, king, the seven cows are seven years. Namely, those seven healthy cows that came up out of the Nile in your vision, Pharaoh, are seven years. 
in reality. Seven years of plenty. And it would go on to be followed by seven years of drought or whatever. That dynamic happens all throughout the interpretation of prophetic apocalyptic visions and dreams all throughout scripture. So when John says this, the scene that I just described where martyrs are, are resurrected and reign with Christ, this is the first resurrection in reality. His readers are already familiar with the concept of the first resurrection. And they would have understood that to refer to Christ, who was the first to rise from the dead. That requires that the first resurrection be in our distant past, almost 2,000 years ago. So the second, so the second resurrection, so that can't be when the saints were raised immortal, and it can't be when Christ will return. It must be at the end of the thousand years when Christ returns and raises the saints. That's the first argument that I'll maybe make, be making in the show. And again, you can see me unpack that argument a few episodes back in the episode on the first resurrection. But the argument that I've just made today is that according to 1 Corinthians 15, death will be the last enemy to be destroyed. And the only way that makes sense is if it is destroyed at, a, at roughly the same time when the saints are raised immortal. Uh, or, or rather, let me put it this way. Because Paul says that death will be destroyed when the saints are raised immortal, then the saints couldn't have been raised immortal 2,000 years ago. Right? Um, because then death, if it was destroyed then, wouldn't be the last enemy. There still will be enemies to be destroyed in our future. This only makes sense, it seems to me, if death will be destroyed after God's people have been raised immortal, and at that same time, the lost are raised, sentenced, and judged, and sent to hell, where they will be destroyed. Because at that point, after they're thrown into hell, and God's people have been made immortal, no one will ever die again. The existential threat of death will have been destroyed finally and forever as the last enemy to have been destroyed. Okay? So, I hope that that has proven helpful and will prove helpful as you continue to think about it. Um, oh, I wanted to share one last time, though, <laughs> uh, this graphic. So, beekeeping, if you're not familiar with Justin Brierley's Unbelievable Radio program, go subscribe, go watch on YouTube. It's a fantastic show. I've, been, I've had the pleasure and the honor of, of having been on there several times, and I'm really looking forward to being on it again. Daniel and I will record this episode in about a month, in mid-May. And then at some point thereafter, Justin will publish it. But be on the lookout because I think it's going to be a really fantastic discussion. Um, not least of which because I might be proven wrong. <laughs> it's, it's certainly possible. Uh, but also because I have the utmost of respect and fondness for Daniel after the time we spent together in South Carolina. So I think what you'll hear is two brothers disagree agreeably and hopefully uh, present some good back and forth argumentation on why you, those of you who watch our debate, should decide or should either embrace premillennialism or amillennialism. So I hope you'll tune into that. Be watching um, the, the unbelievable feed for our show. I suspect it'll come out in late May, after we've shortly after we've recorded it. Um, but like I said, this was going to be a fairly short episode. Before I wrap up, though, I do want to 
give you in the chat an opportunity to ask me any questions you have about the case that I've just presented, or for that matter, about anything else. I told my wife I would stream for 30 to 45 minutes today, and I've still got 10 minutes left in that window, and so I'd be happy to field any questions or thoughts you have in the 10 minutes I've got remaining. Um, so, for example, Phil Fox says he, he needs to get me on the show. Uh, Phil, I've been waiting for you to invite me, so I, I, hope, I hope I hear from you sometime soon with an invitation to come discuss whatever topic you'd like to have me discuss. Um, Jonathan Pritchett speaks highly of you and has enjoyed being on your shows, and I trust, uh, I'll probably trust just about anybody that Jonathan trusts. So reach out to me, send me a message on Facebook, and I'd love to work something out. Um, Darren says, I'm going to laugh if the rapture happens before you're taping. Um, yeah, boy, the whole rapture thing. Um, so, now, here, while I'm waiting to see if anybody has any questions or thoughts that they want to run by me in the last 10 minutes of the show, um, I'll say that while these are the two arguments, the ones I just shared, are going to be the ones that I primarily focus on in um, our discussion on Unbelievable, Those there are a couple of other things I will be discussing. Um, one of those things is that although I am an amillennialist, I part ways with a lot of other amillennialists in my view of Israel. Most amillennialists, it seems to me, are what are arguably wrongly called replacement theologians. I say arguably because it's certainly true they would not comfortably self-identify as such. Um, they would say that uh, they think that the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament were always made to God's people, the church, which was them at that time, but is now the church, both Jew and largely predominantly Gentile. I don't think that's the case. I think the promises were indeed made to Israel. Um, and I think that the Israel, the word Israel in the New Testament always refers to Israel and not to the church. And I think that, uh, I think that many of God's promises to Israel await fulfillment in our future. And so I'll be making the case at times in our discussion on Unbelievable that you can embrace amillennialism and even if you are a person who loves the people of Israel and, 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 and thinks about Israel the way that a dispensationalist does, you don't have to embrace premillennialism or dispensationalism in order to uh, maintain that view of Israel. So that's one thing we may discuss. The other thing that we will discuss, probably, is that I think that there are uh, there are certain texts in Scripture that can't be reconciled with premillennialism, um, specifically the texts which indicate that the um, that that the many of the texts we think have to do with Christ's return are actually about the then impending destruction of Jerusalem in seventy A.D. So, for example, at the very beginning, at the very end of the book of Revelation, John goes out of his way, and Jesus seems to go out of his way, to make clear that the bulk of that vision would be fulfilled within the within a few years of John having written it. And I believe it was written in the mid-70s, sorry, mid-60s. Um, whereas dispensational, the dispensationalism and premillennialism have to put a enormous portion of that vision into the distant future of John. And I think that's a real problem for premillennialism as well. 
So those are some of the things we'll be discussing. Um, now I'll return to the chat and see if there are anything if there's anything I can field in these last few minutes. Jamie asks, "When was Daniel's seventieth week?" I think that was uh, the uh, the. I think that Jesus was killed in the middle of that seventieth week. Okay, um, and so maybe we'll be discussing that in the um, discussion as well. Trinity Radio, Braxton Hunter, I'm guessing, is saying I am looking dapper tonight. Thank you. Um, thank you, either Braxton. I'm assuming it's you, Braxton, uh, or Jonathan, or maybe both of you. That means a lot because um, you guys have a really high-quality video, a really high-quality picture in your show, and I'm trying to up my game, so that means a lot. Uh, Argoski says, how do you know when to interpret scripture figuratively or literally? It's genre. The book of Revelation is in a genre called apocalyptic and expressly records a highly symbolic vision that is sometimes interpreted by John himself or God or an angelic visitor. When they are interpreting the symbolism, that's when what they're saying is to be taken fairly literally. But the, symbol, but the imagery itself is symbolism. That's what the nature of this kind of vision is all throughout scripture. But of course, when we're reading um, a historical narrative, like in a synoptic gospel, there's no reason to be taking that figuratively unless it's a sort of figurative element within the discourse. So for example, in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus talks very plainly about wars and rumors of wars. And um, you know, Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse talks about the, the armies surrounding Jerusalem. This is all very plain, straightforward language. But then he starts using apocalyptic language, lightning flashing from east to west, on clouds, uh, the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And, and this is all stuff straight out of Old Testament apocalyptic visions like Daniel, Daniel 7, the vision of the Ancient of Days. So I think we just let the genre dictate for us, let the literary conventions the authors are using tell us when to interpret figuratively or literally. Darren asks if I believe there's a future redemption of Israel. Yes, I believe that toward the end of the millennium, or right about at the end of the millennium, the thousand years symbolizing the church age we're in now, um, Israel, the people of Israel, the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will corporately embrace her Messiah. Um, let's see. Uh, Phil asks how this view reconciles when it has been 2,000 years since Christ. When the, Is it that the thousand year language is metaphorical? Yeah. So the, word, the number 1,000 all throughout scripture just refers to a large uh, indeterminate number or, or, or very large number. So for example, my, uh, my friend Dee Warren used to say on the, on the Preterist blog and podcast, who owns the cattle, cattle on the thousand and first hill? The reason she asked that question is because the Old Testament says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, if we're just going to treat that number literalistically, woodenly, then we would somebody else would own the cattle on the thousand and first hill, right? Well, no, obviously not. The the language of God owning the cattle on a thousand hills is is a way of saying God owns all the cattle on all the hills, a great number, the great number of hills, and there are other examples of this kind of thing as well. So this so this apocalyptic symbolic vision that John sees is one in which a thousand years transpire, but that thousand years is a number uh, of years symbolizing a, a very long period of time that needn't conform to 1,000 years. It's really straightforward. Um, let's see here. Where would you put the prophecy in Zechariah 12 into my timeline? I don't know. I'm not familiar with that passage, so I'll have to look it up. Uh, uh, let's see. 
<laughs> Jamie says Leighton Flowers was saying he's scared to debate me. Well, I think he's scared to debate me on hell specifically, and he should be because he's a traditionalist, and traditionalist can't traditionalism can't hold up under scrutiny of debate. Um, but I don't think Leighton is scared to debate me on anything else. Um, at least, certainly not on things that are in his wheelhouse, like soteriology. In fact, uh, I think that besides the appearance that he and I have had on Unbelievable already, um, I think that you might be able to expect he. Uh, Leighton and I to do a live and in-person formal moderated debate on Calvinism at some point in the future. I'm saying that with Braxton Hunter watching because I think he's the one who might arrange that at some point. Don't hold me to that, but it's based on a conversation I've had with him and, and we'll see if it happens. Um, let's see here. I guess that's it. So I don't see any other things that I need to field. So, and it's two minutes till the end of the stream, till I wanted to end the stream anyway. For those of you who have watched live, thank you so much. It means the world to me, and I've really enjoyed interacting with you in the chat. I hope that I don't expect the argument I've offered here to convince anybody immediately, but give it some thought because I think that you'll find as you continue to read 1 Corinthians 15 and the passage in Isaiah 25 that he is alluding to when he says death is swallowed up in victory, and if you look at Revelation, Revelation 21, death shall be no more, he will wipe away every tears. That's also pulling from that passage in Isaiah 25. If you look at these things together, I think that what you'll find is that, yeah, Paul thinks that death will be the last enemy to be destroyed, and he thinks it will be destroyed when the saints are raised bodily immortal. I don't see how you can reconcile that with premillennialism. But maybe you do. So if you can think of anything, comment on this video after it's been published. I'd love to hear what you think. And if you are able to show me the error in my case or the flaw in my case, I'll have to come up with a different argument to present on Unbelievable in, uh, in a month or so when I am alongside um, Daniel. So... Hope this has been helpful. If you haven't already, go back and watch the previous episode of The Apologetics where I discussed the first resurrection because that's where I offer in more detail my other big reason for holding to amillennialism, which is the nature of the first resurrection in Revelation 20. Uh, Susan is doing my job for me and telling you to please like this video. It really would mean a lot to me if you give me that thumbs up. Also, subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. And uh, as Phil says, don't forget to smash that like button. Yeah, that's the way all those popular YouTubers are saying it, right? But also subscribe to the channel and click that notifications bell because in the next couple of days at the latest I will upload a new episode of the apologetics that isn't a live stream and also isn't a biblical Hebrew 101 it is a um, gosh what was it it was uh, oh it, it was um, it was a it was a pushback against Leighton Flowers on whether or not we Calvinists should embrace or own the puppet or robot analogy. So if you click that notifications bell um, on top of subscribing to the channel, as soon as that video has been published, you'll get a notification and you can watch it and let me know what you think. So. Those are uh, my thoughts for today. I really appreciate you joining me. And if you watch after the show has been archived, I appreciate you too. Maybe just slightly less than the people who watch live. Uh, either way, comment on this video and let me know what you think. I'll look forward to hearing it. And in the meantime, come back in two weeks' time on Monday... April 19th, same time, 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern, for the next episode of The Apologetics, in which I will interview my friend Stephen Boyce on the um, relation, on, on what the church fathers can tell us about the dating and uh, authorship of New Testament documents. I think it'll be a really powerful discussion uh, for apologetics, for Christian apologetics. So come back and um, tune in for that. 
So uh, thank you again. Take care and I'll see you next time. I've been your host, Chris Date, and thanks so much for watching The Apologetics, where we think together through what we believe, why we believe it, and not something else. If you've enjoyed this episode, please click the thumbs up, like icon, the subscribe button, and the bell icon to receive notifications when new videos are streamed or uploaded. Either way, come back in two weeks for the next episode of The Apologetics, streaming live on YouTube every other Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific. Until then...